Romans chapter 5. We are in a transitional chapter in the book of Romans after having explained the inner workings of justification and having established the biblical proof for justification, Paul is now ready to move in, in chapter 6 to sanctification, to what it, what, what it means to be saved, how we live when we're saved. Sanctification is the result of justification. He saved me, and the question then is how now should I live? Amen. And that's the kind of answers that we find in, in chapters 6 and 7 and 8. So we're, we're headed in that direction. But in this transitional chapter, chapter 5, Paul is examining some of the benefits, some of the blessings that come along with being justified, having been restored to the grace of God, having been entered into fellowship with God. And so the first blessing that we looked at last week was in the first five verses of chapter 5, and it, it was peace. We have peace with God. We have real, genuine peace. It's a peace that carries us through trials. It's a peace that carries us through tribulations. It's a peace in the middle of chaos and trouble. It's a peace that is founded on the great love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And that's what we saw in the first five verses of chapter 5. Now we're going to focus for a few moments on verses 6 through 11 as we take the next step in this chapter. And, and Paul ended verse 5, that, that passage that we just concluded last Sunday where we talked about the peace of God, he ended it with the love of God, that great love of God that was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. So now for the next few verses, we're going to focus on the love of God. This next six verses are built around a single powerful point. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves us. He did it because he loves us. The main point here is going to be the great love of God because the great love of God is the foundation for all of the blessings of God in our lives. Well, we will never deserve God's blessings. We're never going to earn God's blessings. We're never going to be good enough to be blessed by God. We're blessed because he loves us. And he loved us while we were yet sinners. He died for us. So should we ever wonder how much he loves us? Should we ever question the blessings of his love? We need only to remember that while we were yet sinners, he loved us enough to die for us. That's the main message of this passage. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. We'll read them together and then we'll get into the exposition of it. It begins in verse 6 and it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to god by the death of his son how much more or much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life and not only so but we also joy in god through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the atonement. That's the passage. We'll begin in verse 6. I'm going to read it again, and we'll get into the exposition of it. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. What kind of love does God have for us? What kind of love does God have for you? Have you ever wondered about the love of God? I want you to know this morning he has the kind of love that motivated him to die on our behalf while we 
were weak, while we were unable to help ourselves. The first verse of the passage describes the miserable condition that we were in when God loved us. He saved us while we were yet without strength. He he loved us while we were, the word means powerless. It means weak. It means helpless. It means without strength. We were, we were hopelessly stuck in the, the miry clay. There, there was no hope for us. Uh, sin had incapacitated us. We, there was absolutely no way we were incapable of doing anything to save ourselves. But he saved us while we were the ungodly. That's what the verse says, the, the ungodly. That means that we were in the state of opposition against God. We were essentially the enemies of God. We were against him. We were on the wrong side. We had battle lines were drawn, and we were the enemies of God. As such, we didn't deserve his forgiveness. We never deserved his grace. We never deserved his love. But that wasn't enough to stop him. That wasn't enough to to cause him not to reach down and pick us up out of a miry clay. Last week we said that as the redeemed, we now stand in the grace of God. Remember, we talked about it. We stand there in God's grace. It's a stable foundation. Where That is where we stand. But before he saved us, before he redeemed us, before he shed his blood for us, we were standing in the wrath of God. Not in the grace of God, but in the wrath of God. We had nothing to look forward to except a certain fearful anticipation of the judgments of God. But thank God, mercy triumphed over judgment. When he should have allowed us to reap the results of our sins, when he would have been perfectly justified to reject us completely, God loved us enough to reach down to us and lift us out of a miry clay. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Can I tell you that Calvary came at God's appointed time in due season? When the fullness of God's time was come, he delivered us from our sins. It was an event that was prophesied from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right there at the very beginning, God prophesied that there was coming a Redeemer, there was coming a Savior. But even though a lot of years trans- went by in that, in that time between that promise and the cross, God never wavered, God never backed up. It was always in the plan of God that perfect time when Christ would come. Men would question It's been so long. It's been such a long time. Perhaps God has forgotten, but God never questioned because it was going to happen in due time according to God's plan. His plan never faltered. His plan never failed. At the precise moment that he had already predetermined, the Spirit of God overshadowed a virgin by the name of Mary, and a holy child was born. Amen. God was made flesh. He lived on this earth 33 and a half years, and and cruel men took him and beat him and mocked him and spit upon him and crucified him. And all of it happened in God's perfect time. There are two key points there that need to be made. First of all, all of God's promises are fulfilled in God's timeline. All of God's promises come to pass in due time according to God's time frame. His word never returns to him void. When he promised it, he knew precisely when he would bring it to pass and he will show up right on time. His promise will never be early but it will never be late. Now, sometimes that will try our patience. 
Sometimes that will cause us to question God. Sometimes we, we want to hurry God. We want to we rush God. God, you said you would. When God said he would, he knew exactly when he would. And God's not moving his timetable. It's going to happen in due season. What, what, it, what is required to claim the promise of God is not an understanding of the timetable of God, but simply faith to trust God. Faith holds on to the promise and says, I remember that God said, and I know that when the fullness of God's time comes, God's going to do what God said he would do. A lot of faithful saints have gone to the grave having not yet received the promise of God, but having held on to it with a faith understanding that whenever God's time comes, God's going to bring to pass what he said he would bring to pass. And there are children that are saved in the church today because parents who prayed and pled with God and pleaded the blood before the throne of God and stood in the presence of God and got a promise from God that they never saw come to pass. But the children in the church today, because of the grace of God, because when God makes a promise, God keeps it in his timetable, not according to ours. So faith says, I'm going to trust you, God. No matter what I see around me. I'm going to trust you, God. No matter what's going on in my life. I'm going to trust you, God. No matter how many obstacles there are to the promise, you're going to do exactly what you said you would do in your time. Amen? Secondly, God's grace reaches all of us at precisely the right time according to God's plan for our life. God planned the atonement at just the right time in history. God planned the cross. It wasn't by chance that Jesus Christ came when the Roman Empire was in, in control of Jerusalem. It wasn't by chance that he died by means of, uh, of crucifixion, the cruel means of, of, of capital, capital punishment under the Roman Empire. That wasn't just chance. That was the plan of God. That was the purpose of God. It was prophesied years and years before. He was going to hang on the tree. They were going to pierce his side and blood and water was going to flow. Everything happened according to God's timetable. Let me tell you something. God planned your redemption for exactly the right moment in your life. He arranged the very instant when you would stand in the house of God or sit under the sound of anointed preaching and the grace of God would prick your heart. He planned that moment when the conviction of God would reach out to you and begin to convict you of sin in your life. It wasn't an accident. It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't just because somebody invited you to church. It wasn't just because you woke up that morning and decided you'd go to church. It was the very plan of God. God has a plan for your life even before you were saved. You believe that? He told Jeremiah while you were in your mother's womb, I called you. I had a plan for you. It was never an accident that you walked in the house of God on that fateful day when the grace of God reached you. God's love got a hold of you at precisely the right moment in your life. Now listen to me. Perhaps if he had come to you earlier, you would have been shielded from some trying times in your life. Perhaps if it had happened sooner, you wouldn't have endured some of the hardships that sin put you through. Perhaps if the grace of God had come to you uh, just a little bit sooner, there would have been some things you would have had to go through. But the converse holds true. Perhaps if he had come a week later, they would have found you dead in a gutter somewhere. Perhaps if he had come to you just a moment later, just a day later, you would have walked down a road that you would have never been able to come back from. I don't know, but I do know this. Uh, in the fullness of God's time, According to God's purpose for your life, the grace of God has reached you. In the fullness of God's purpose, mercy has come into your life. You've got to believe God has a plan for you. 
God has a purpose for your life. Perhaps the testimony of where you've been and what you've been through works into the very plan and purpose of God for your life. I can't tell you why the timetable is as it is. I can simply tell you that God is moving in your life according to His perfect plan. He has a plan for you. He has a direction for your life. And in His perfect time, mercy has triumphed over judgment. I'm so thankful for the day that it reached down and got a hold of my heart. I'm so thankful for the day that he took a young man that was running from him and that he turned me around. I'm so thankful for the day that the grace of God got a hold of my life. Amen. I'm thankful for his love. Amen. Why don't you take a minute, lift your hands. Why don't you tell him, Lord Jesus, I love you. Lord Jesus, I appreciate what you've done in my life. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. There are two phrases here that say essentially the same thing in different ways. Now, many have tried to draw a distinction between the righteous man in the first half of the verse and the good man in the second half of the verse, but I really believe that amounts to over-interpretation of the phrase, of what's happening here. The, the, the same statement is expressed both times. First, it's expressed in a negative, and then it is restated in a positive with the same conclusion both times. The first phrase stated with the negative says, very rarely in the human experience will someone die for a righteous man. It's just not likely to happen. Then the second phrase restates that and says, you know, perhaps, maybe, someone would die for a good man. But if they do, it's, it's a very... It's a very daring act. It stretches the limits of human nature. It's not, it's not common for someone to lay down his life for even a good man. Both statements are designed to lead you to the conclusion that if it is so rare for someone to die for a decent, good, righteous man, then it would be unthinkable for someone to deliberately die on behalf of an evil man. That's the point of the verse. That's the point that Paul is making here. Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He died for us while we were weak and wicked. The real contrast is not between the righteous man and the good man. The real contrast is between the decent human being found in, in verse 7 that someone might peradventure by chance actually die for someone that was good. Uh, and and the, the contrast is between that decent good man and the evil wicked man in verse 6 uh, because Christ died for the ungodly. That's the contrast that's being made here. It is so difficult to find someone who would willingly lay down their life for a good person. Then how much more amazing is it to see that Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. For us who did not deserve it. We were not worthy of it. We couldn't earn it. We weren't even good. But he died for us. You could twist it around in your mind. You can find instances in history. Every battlefield has those foxhole stories of that one man who fell on the grenade, saved the lives of his companions. It, it, it may happen somewhere in the great love of humanity that someone who dearly loves another human and counts them precious, may lay down his life so that they can live. But that's not what happened at the cross. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. 
it would be as if the foxhole situation, the other guy in the foxhole is fighting for the other side. And the man lays down his life. That's what happened at Calvary. God loved us. Verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That word translated commendeth means to show, to prove, to establish, or exhibit. It has the connotation of presenting proof. What Paul is saying is God proved his love for us at the cross. God proved how much he loves us at the cross. Calvary is the proof of God's great love for you. While we were yet sinners, while we were still lost, while we were still the enemies of God, Jesus Christ died for us. That establishes the reality of God's love for us. And the Greek word order here places the emphasis on the word his, makes it very, very possessive. It's a possessive pronoun. And that's important because the original readers, when they read this, they, they, they would read it that through the death of Jesus Christ, God demonstrated his own love towards us. Not the love of another, but his own love towards us. David Bernard says, this only makes sense if we understand the oneness of the Godhead. How does Christ's death show God's love? Emphatically, how does, very, very forcefully, the Greek says, it is his love. How does Christ's death emphatically show God's love if Christ and God are to be two separate persons? Did God love the world so much that he sent someone else to die for the world? Peradventure for a good man, a man might lay down his life. That's entirely different than saying peradventure for a good man, somebody might tell somebody else to go die for them. That's not what he said. But it was God loved the world so much. He demonstrated his love. God manifested himself in flesh. That's what the scripture says. God became a man. And as the son of God, he sacrificed that human life for us. God loved us so much that he gave himself on a cross. God, the scripture says, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself our father our creator became our savior and our redeemer in Jesus Christ and God showed us his own love that's the wonder of the incarnation God became a man and he showed us his love by shedding his own blood for us God has shown us how much he loves us. To borrow from the, the, the language from last week's passage, he has, verse 5, it ended with, he has poured out his love upon our hearts. Without, and we talked about how that's, that's continual, it's ongoing, it's, it's, uh, it's an inexhaustible supply. Without reservation, God has poured out his love. Calvary is where God poured out his love. The cross is God's love poured out. That's where we see the demonstration of what it means to be loved by God. The cross proves to us how much God loves us. Pastor, you're spending an awful lot of time on one point. It shows up over and over again in the verses through this passage. There's a reason for because when trial and trouble comes into your life, when suffering and tribulation comes upon you, and it will, there, there's no promise that whenever you get, you, you become a part of the church and you repent of your sins and you enter into that reconciliation with God that life's just going to be a bed of roses. 
you're still going to have struggles. You're still going to have trials. You're still going to have trouble. And when trouble comes upon you, whenever the dark clouds obscure the, the goodness and the blessings of God in your life and, you, and it seems like everything is falling apart and it seems like everything is going wrong and it seems like you can't find an answer anywhere. Paul is pointing you towards that shining example of God's love for you. The cross will always remind you of how much God loves you. You may not find the evidence in your life. You may, not, you may not be able to see it for the problems and the obstacles that are around you. You may survey the landscape of your life and you may not find anything but struggle and trial and temptation and trouble and chaos and pain. But the cross stands forever as the proof of God's great Love for you. So when circumstances tempt you to doubt God, whenever trouble and trial tempt you to, to question God's love for you, the cross stands as a timeless testimony of how much He really does love you. When you question God's love, you, you really need to stop and reconsider. You need to stop and take another look uh, at the cross. You need to hear the voice of heaven expressed uh, in a broken, bloody body. You need to hear God saying, this is how much I love you. I did it all for you. While we were yet sinners. There is another key element of that phrase that's very important. There's a contrast there between our lives before and our lives after salvation. There's a contrast between what I was before he saved me and what I am after he saved me. While I was a sinner, Christ died for me. But thank God his love and his mercy didn't leave me that way. I once was lost in sin. I once was the enemy of God. We're going to see that phrase enemy introduced before we get through this passage today. I was once the enemy of God, but I have been reconciled with him. I have been saved. I am not the man I used to be. I am not the person that I was before the cross. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. But his great love didn't leave me the way I was. He changed me. There's something different about my life now. I'm not what I used to be. And that really makes a good transition in between what we've been talking about in chapters 1 through 4 and what we're going to talk about in chapters 6 through 8 because my life before the cross is different now than my life after the cross. And Paul's going to talk to us about how we ought to live in light of the fact that we have been saved. Amen? Verse 9 says, Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If Christ died for us while we were hopelessly ungodly sinners, if he bled and died for us when we were lost and undone, how much more Will he do for us now that we have been reconciled to him? Now that we are living for him. Think about it for a minute. If he did all of that for us while we were lost, if he did all of that for us while we were undone, if he did all of that for us while we were sinners, how much more will he do for us now that we've been saved by the grace of God? If he counted us righteous, while we were still unrighteous, how much more will he save us now that we are his? The assurance of future salvation comes from the reality of what has already happened in our past. God, who went so far to save us, will not easily abandon us. That's the message. Now make no mistake about it. You can walk away from the grace of God. If you so choose, you can count the blood of Jesus as an unholy thing and you can tread it underfoot. You can abandon the cross 
But listen to this preacher this morning. God isn't going to give up on you easily. God doesn't easily abandon that which he paid such a precious price for. You might escape the church house. You might hide yourself from the preacher. You might get away from everybody who reminds you of the life you used to live. But you're going to find that the sure mercies of God will never abandon you. You're going to find that the sure mercies of God will pursue you wherever you go in this life. You're going to find that the grace of God uh, is going to follow you because he doesn't give up easy. If he went to such great cost to save you, he's not going to abandon you easily. Amen. So Paul's point is twofold. First, if God paid such an incredible price to save you, then he's not going to let you go without a fight. His love and his mercy are going to pursue you. You're going to wake up in the dead of the night somewhere, and, and you're going to, all that that you thought you left behind, all that that you thought you abandoned, all of that that you thought you had put in your past, it's going to still be fresh. It's going to still be there. You're still going to feel the grace of God pulling at your heart because he's not going to let go. He paid a price for you. He loved you while you were yet a sinner. If you walk away from the grace of God, you're not going to nullify his great love for you. He's still going to reach for you. He's still going to love you. Secondly, if God paid such a great price to redeem you, from your former life and now you're living for him then you can rest assured that he is well able to deliver you from whatever happens in your present life if he did so much to save you one of the biggest tricks that hell likes to play on a saint of God is well you spurned the grace of God now you messed up one time too many God will never forgive you for this if he did so much to save you then he's well able to keep you. If you turn to him, if you pour your heart out to him in repentance, if you come back to the cross, you're always going to find the grace of God that is there. Amen? If he paid such a great price for you before you were his, how much more, how much greater is his love for you now that you are his? And how much more is he willing to do to preserve you if you'll simply put your faith in him and walk with him. Amen. Verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 10 is a summary of everything that we have read so far this morning. While we were God's enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. To be reconciled means to be restored to favor, to restore to relationship. Christ's death reunites us with God. It puts us, we said this emphatically last week, it puts us at peace with him. And that, that, that word peace has to do with bringing back together that which was separated or divided. It reunites us with God. The transition from being God's enemy to being in a state of reconciliation with God is as radical of a transition as can be imagined. It's hard to even begin to grasp how radical of a change it is to go from being the enemy of God to being the friend of God. The worst possible situation that a person could ever be in is to be the enemy of God. To be the enemy of God implies both that a sinner is hostile towards God, the sinner rejects God, and that God is hostile towards the sinner. God has rejected the sinner. That's what it means to be the enemy of God. It's a fearful thing to think of God as being hostile towards you. 
We like to think of the love of God. Well, Brother McCall, you're preaching on the great love of God. Well, let me tell you something about the love of God. There is a coexisting wrath of God that, that exists in, in the, the, the reality of who God is. There, there's tension there. He loves you, but as long as you're his enemy, he's going to judge you. Amen. There's a wrath also that is just as sure and just as real. That's what the Scripture says. The wrath of God is kindled towards the ungodly. There's no middle ground there. Passages in both Testaments, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, make the same statement. It says the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 5 and 5 says that God hates, hates. That's strong language, friend. God hates all workers of iniquity. That's a fearful place to be. You are the enemies of God. We've talked about how you are lowly sinners, ungodly, helpless, and weak. But you are the enemy of God. Paul's point is that even while we were in a state of mutual hostility, we were God's enemy and God was our enemy. God took the first step to bring about reconciliation. His great love overwhelmed his great wrath. Mercy, the psalmist said, triumphed over judgment. God made a way where there was no way. The way, of course, was through his son. That's the wonder of the cross. God made himself a body, flesh and blood, his only begotten son. He inhabited that body. God became a man. And at the cross, God made a way that he could pour out his wrath, his judgment, his anger and sin upon that body that he made for himself instead of on us. God satisfied his own wrath. God satisfied his own sense of justice and judgment. God made a way. I know I'm the only one that ever argues with my wife. So I'll use myself for an example. But when two parties are at odds, when there is a dispute, when there's a disagreement, when two people rise to the level of being enemies, the hardest step to take towards reconciliation is the first step. The hardest step to take is to be that first person to humble yourself, to, to set aside your pride, to set, you know, whenever you're in that kind of conflict, intractable conflict, both of you have been wronged, both of you are angry, both of you have issues. There's never, I've never sat in my office with a couple that was having marital problems where all the problems were on one side. Never. There's always, both of you have done something wrong. Both of you have said something wrong. Both of you have acted like an idiot. It's the truth. Both of you need to apologize. Both of you need to repent. Both of you need to look the other in the eye and say, I'm sorry that I did what I did. Marriages fall apart. I didn't mean to get into marriage counseling, but I'm going to stay here for a minute. Marriages fall apart because we're so full of pride that we're not willing to say I'm sorry first. Marriages come apart because we're so full of ourselves that we put our love for our own feelings over our love for our spouse. And neither one of us are willing to come to the middle and say, you know what? I'm sorry. The hardest step is the first step. Somebody has to swallow their pride. Somebody has to forget their own offenses. Somebody has to Ignore that sense that they've been wrong and take that first step towards reconciliation. Once that's done, I've been in, the, I've been in that place. If in, in a counseling session, with a, with a, if you can get them to come to that place where they honestly say, I'm sorry, something breaks. 
Tears begin to flow. Grace and mercy comes into the room. And all of a sudden, that great chasm, that great divide that's between a man and his wife, all of a sudden, that thing is gone. Counselor, just go ahead and leave the room. It's over. If you can get somebody to take that first step. Listen to me. God took the first step in reconciling you to himself. You were his enemy, and he was your enemy. He had been wronged. He had... The, the funny thing, I use the example of, of a husband and wife, and it's really an imperfect example. Because we had no right. We had no transgression against God. He had never been nothing but good to us. But God had been wronged. God had... We, we were way back in chapter 1. When we knew he was God, we refused to worship him as God. We rejected him. We were his enemies. God didn't have to take the step. It wasn't his step to take. But God took the first step. He made a way where there was no way. He left his throne in glory. He robed himself in flesh. The Bible said he made himself a little lower than the angels to suffer death for every man. The point is this. The hard part's already been done. The second step is up to you. The second step is up to the sinner. God has made a way that you can stop being his enemy. God has made a way of reconciliation. God has made a way for you to have peace with him. The key point is this. God's already done the hard part. Humanly speaking, the hard part was the death of the man, Christ Jesus especially when that death was for people who did not deserve it and would not appreciate it. Humanly speaking, the hard part was for God to make himself a body, flesh and blood, inhabit that body and go to a cross and die. And the very people that he was making that extreme step of mercy for would reject him, mock him, beat him, spit upon him, nail him. That's the hard part from a human viewpoint. Theologically speaking, the hard part happened back in chapter 4 and verse 5 when God counted the unrighteous as righteous. Theologically speaking, the hard part was to overlook sin, to cover sin, to, to cover it in the blood of Jesus and declare that which was unrighteous to be righteous. Theologically speaking, the hard part was to restore the enemy of God to fellowship with God, to make us his friends. The easy part is for him to keep us once he saved us. Sometimes we think that's the hard part. The hard part's already been done. The hard part happened at the cross. The easy part has given us the power to stay saved once we've been saved. Now that we're his, now that we're his friends, now that we're righteous, now that we want to remain righteous, he can help you overcome any obstacle. If he, if he can do all of that to save you, he can help you make it through any problem. God loves you so much that he made a way for you. He did the hard part. He started the process of reconciliation. It only remains for you to accept what God has done. Not only that, but now that he saved you, the hard part's done. He can keep you. He can bring you through this life. He can bring you through every problem and trial, every situation that you encounter. The same power that is displayed at the cross is working with you and for you to deliver you from this present world. Again, we see the oneness of God in Christ. How could God reconcile us by the death of Christ if God and Christ are separate persons? How does God reconcile us to himself by the death of another? Since God, who is the sum total of deity, was in Christ, incarnate, 
reconciling the world to himself. That's how God can reconcile us to him through the cross. Amen. It all hinges on the identity of God. Now, the verse says that we are saved by his life. The literal translation would be in his life. What keeps us and preserves us in our relationship with God is the life of Christ in us. It's the power of his resurrection life in us. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and imparts to us the power that we need to live for God. That's an important concept. It's an important point because salvation is not just a one-time experience that we had somewhere in our past. It's also a present tense experience and a future tense experience for the believer. The believer is saved by the present and future participation in the life of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. We were reconciled by Christ's death. That's what he says. We, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. But then read the latter half. Much more, more than that, more than being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. It's not enough just to look backwards at what he's already done. The life of Christ is what saves us. Christ in us is the hope of glory. That same love of God that saved us at the cross, verse 5 said, it's shed abroad in our hearts. How? Through the Holy Ghost. That's the resurrecting life of Christ. If that same spirit which dwelt in him dwells in you, it's going to resurrect your body just like it resurrected his body. We're saved in the life of Jesus Christ. That means that if you cut yourself off from the life of Christ, then you lose that present tense salvation and the hope of a future tense salvation. Christ in us, the scripture says is the hope of glory. It's not enough just to look back at Christ's death. We have to also have that resurrection life living in us. And finally, verse 11 says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Not only do we have confidence in our salvation, rejoicing in the hope of future glory in the middle of present trial and tribulation, but we can also rejoice in God himself. How do we rejoice in God? We rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is our only access to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. It's the only way we can know God. Today, you can find everything you need to find about God in, in Jesus Christ. You can know everything you need to know about God in Jesus Christ. God's grace, the demonstration of his great love for us, the wonderful justification that we have received from him can only come to us through his manifestation in the flesh, through Jesus Christ. To put it in a nutshell, we rejoice in God through Christ because from God through Christ we received reconciliation. We rejoice in God through Christ because we received our salvation from God through Christ. The King James Version says we have the atonement. That word atonement is used only this single time in the New Testament, the King James Version of the Bible. The Greek word there indicates reconciliation or restoration to favor. And if you go back to the time and period in which the King James Version was translated in the 1700s, that was the meaning of the word atonement. At one meant. It was bringing back together. We have a different meaning today. The point is that through Jesus Christ, from God, by Jesus Christ, we received reconciliation. Now, I'm coming quickly to a close, but verse 10 introduced a very important concept, and I want to close just by revisiting that for just a moment. I am reconciled to God by his death. 
but I am saved by his life. The Holy Ghost is the Spirit of God that comes to live within us when we repent of our sins and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what the Scripture says. They said in Acts, the second chapter, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter responded to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for this promise. is to you and to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The Holy Ghost is that Spirit of God, the quickening Spirit of God that was life in Christ. And today, on the basis of the cross, on the basis of the great love of God that was displayed at Calvary, you can be forgiven of all of your sins. You can be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. And you can be saved and remain saved by the power of his life. It begins with repentance, and it culminates in the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that life of Jesus Christ within us. That's the hope of glory. That's what we have to maintain. That's what we've got to hold fast to. The great love of God was proven to us at Calvary, and it is shed abroad in our hearts, verse 5 said, by the Holy Ghost. The great love of God was poured out on an old rugged cross, and it is poured out in our hearts by the gift of the Holy Ghost. What a wonderful concept. I want to be saved. I want to be right. I want to live. I want to be reconciled by his death. And I'm going to be saved by his life. Would you stand with me? This morning, you can see the great love of God on display at Calvary. You can see the grace of God working, moving in an incredible fashion at an old rugged cross on a hill called Golgotha. And you can experience for yourself the end result of that great love of God when you repent of your sins and the grace of God washes over you. When you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and that weight of sin forever lifts from you, and when you surrender your life to him and he fills you with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's how he pours that love that was demonstrated at Calvary into your heart. It's shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. I wonder this morning as I look across this house, there's a whole lot of people here this morning that are in various stages of your walk with God. There's some here that have been in this thing for years and years and years and years. Some here that have been in it and left it and come back to it. There's some here that have never really ever been exposed to it. It really doesn't matter where you are in your walk with God this morning. What matters is the great love that God has for you. And an invitation is going forth from the throne of God right now to just experience His love in your life. I'd ask you on a Sunday morning... If you'd find a place of prayer for a few moments, church, if you'd just gather in or kneel where you are, whatever you're comfortable doing, but if you'd find a place of prayer for a few moments, would you, would you just take a moment and let the love of God touch your heart? Would you take a moment and let the grace of God minister to you?